Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about emotions in medieval philosophy with Martin Picave, who is Professor of Philosophy and of Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. Hi, Martin. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Okay, so today our episode topic is going to be emotions, which is something that has occasionally arisen in the podcast. Uh, maybe the most obvious thing is that I talked about Seneca's treatise on anger. Obviously, that's about an emotion, namely anger. But it's, a, it's not something that I've talked about a lot in this series, and it may seem a surprising topic for some listeners. Could you say why philosophers should be interested in emotions? Yes, I don't think it's surprising because uh, emotions are part of our mental life, a very important part. Um, well, we might go around the world and uh, only act on, uh, on careful deliberation, but often we, uh, we interact with uh, the world and our fellow citizens by being angry at them, loving them, hating them, uh, and so on. Uh, so they're an important part of how we manage to, to get around. And philosophers in the medieval period saw that as well, for example, in, in Aquinas, um, who provides, at least in terms of pages and words the most comprehensive account of emotions uh, before the early modern period he has a whole series of questions in the prima secunde in the part on the principles of action so he takes very serious the idea that emotions are principles of action um, and uh, require to be discussed uh, in the same way as for example the will and and virtues have to be discussed as well because they're also principles of action that's one reason uh, why um, philosophers should be interested in emotions another reason is of course that um, at least in classical Aristotelian philosophy emotions are that which are moderated by the virtues. Um, so temperance uh, moderates our desires. And of course, if you want to understand the nature of virtues, you have to understand the nature of the things that are moderated. So uh, I can't imagine any complete moral psychology that is not uh, also covering um, the phenomenon of emotions. Can I just ask you a quick terminological question here? In antique philosophy, when people talk about emotions, usually they're talking about pathé which has this very strong connotation of passivity. Um, and I guess that the Latin word that comes closest to our word emotions is passiones. Is that right? So yes, it's yeah. effectively the Latin version of the same. Exactly. So uh, the term emotion doesn't appear before the 17th century. I think um, it is in Descartes, but they actually mean something slightly different. So the, the classical term for emotions is um, passions or passiones. Uh, um, that's quite uh, interesting for various reasons we might get into. Um, the medievals, of course, they also sometimes refer to them as affectus, um, and they also use terms uh, that they take from antiquity, like perturbaciones or uh, agritudines. Um, but of course, those are descriptions of, of passions uh, that are uh, negative. I mean, if you call a passion a kind of a disturbance of the soul, then you indicate that it's a bad thing. And uh, the medieval philosophers do not think that passions are per se a bad thing. Of course, some manifestations of passions are bad, but uh, not all of them. And in fact, some of them are almost obligatory, like love for God, if that counts as an emotion. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, an obvious question that poses itself in the medieval context, since they are all working within what's sometimes called faculty psychology, where you have these different powers of soul, 
is where do the emotions fit? I mean, they have a kind of limited range of possible answers that they could give here. Uh, are emotions somehow connected to reason? Are they connected to the will or what? Where do medieval philosophers locate the emotions in our psychology? Yeah, the Latin philosophers of the 13th century can be seen as completing Aristotle's faculty psychology when they uh, try to find a place for the emotions in the economy of um, uh, psychological powers. They're not, that's not new. Uh, patristic authors do the same, um, and they are heavily rely on patristic authors. But one of the key questions they have is like, where do emotions fit? Um, do they belong to the sensitive soul, i.e. the soul we have in common with animals, or do they belong to the uh, intellective soul, i.e. the soul that is typical for human beings? And um, depending on the authors, um, the responses are quite different. For example, for Aquinas, emotions or, or passiones um, are in the sense of appetite. There are some emotion or passion-like states also in the higher uh, appetite, i.e. the will, but Aquinas does not call them passiones, um, passions. But in later authors, in Don Scotus, for example, uh, whom we discussed a couple of uh, podcasts uh, ago, um, uh, he thinks that the passions of the soul, the human passions of the soul, belong actually to the will. They are in the will. Um, and there are some passion-like um, um, emotions in the lower appetite, i.e. the one we share with the animals, but those are not uh, emotions in the proper sense. Okay. Actually, one of the issues that comes up there is one you mentioned just in passing, which is whether animals, non-human animals, in other words, have emotions. And I guess that it's plausible to say that they do, right? Because animals seem to react with anger yes, in certain yeah. circumstances. Yeah. And so if you locate the emotions in humans in a higher faculty that that uh, animals don't have, like the will, yeah. then you have, you're sort of forced to say that either um, animals don't have emotions, although they seem to, or they have something that is like an emotion or that emotions can, you know, work differently in animals than they do in humans. Yes. So among authors like Aquinas, uh, those authors who think that emotions belong to the sensitive soul, um, they all agree on the idea that animals have emotions, including anger. Um, of course, they're not angry about the same things as human beings are angry. I mean, they don't get angry at not being promoted or so, <laughs> obviously, but uh, that doesn't mean they don't have anger in the proper sense. Right. Um, of course, um, if it's a cat, it just assumes it's in charge in a, of absolutely. any circumstance. <laughs> so, uh, now, in, in sort of anticipating what medievals might say about emotions, I guess the obvious thing to do is to think about what Aristotle says, because he's usually their main point of reference. And Aristotle talks about the emotions in various places, including the rhetoric. But to me, the most prominent passage where he talks about emotions is actually a sort of passing remark that he makes about anger. Hmm. And here he says that anger can be considered in two ways. It's a physical phenomenon. So it's the boiling of the blood around the heart, as he says. But it's also a phenomenon of desire or thought, maybe. And he says, in particular, it's a desire for revenge. And then he says that the natural philosopher might think about, about it in terms of its physiological manifestation, whereas the dialectician, whatever he means by that, thinks about it as a desire for revenge. Is that the way the medievals think about it, too, that it has this kind of double-sided uh, nature where it's both something in the body and something 
maybe in the soul? Yeah, some do. Um, so the passage you're referring to at the beginning of uh, Aristotle's On the Soul is indeed a very important uh, passage because uh, depending on which view you have about emotions, you have to say something about the, um, that passage. Aquinas, for example, has a very straightforward reading of this. So he thinks indeed um, that uh, we get some some sort of idea here of what an emotion is and he takes very seriously the idea that an emotion in this case anger is both a desire for revenge and involves essentially a bodily change and that is one of the key reasons why he thinks that emotions belong to the sensitive appetite i.e they don't belong to the cognitive faculties of the sensory so like perception and imagination and, and so on they belong to the sense of appetite i.e a desiring faculty we have because the appetite is essentially linked to the body, the, the whole body as an organ. So every um, movement of the appetite also entails a bodily change. So you, you might say that Aquinas, uh, for example, has a hylomorphic understanding of emotions because he thinks that there's, there's a formal aspect, i.e. The, the, the pro-attitude in this sense, um, and there's a material attitude, i.e. the bodily change. Um, and he he takes that more or less from that very passage. Uh, although, of course, in Aristotle, it's not very clear what Aristotle means here. Uh, right. In um, fact, he's really just making a methodological point. Exactly. Probably yeah. you shouldn't take it too seriously yeah. as a theory of emotion. But the point, the passage is very important because this seems to be one of the only references to emotions in the whole work on the soul. And the medievals, when they read Aristotle's De Anima, they they wonder about all the things that haven't been covered there. For another thing that I mean, hasn't been covered there apparently seems to be something like the faculty of the will, which the medievals, of course, also think right. it's very important. Some of them even complain about the fact that it's missing. Yeah. Fact, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting that his account of the emotions then is actually a lot like his account of sensation. And this shows how thoroughgoing his hylomorphism is. He always wants to say there's a material phenomenon. In the case of sensation, it's the reception of a species in the eye. Mm. In the case of anger, it's the blood around the heart. And then there's a psychological uh, aspect which in the case of sensation is seeing, for example, yeah. and the case of anger is forming this desire for revenge. Exactly, yeah. And you might think that this is fairly counterintuitive because um, there are certain desires that do not result in a change of the body uh, because you don't perceive it. Uh, of course, if you're angry, it's you obviously have also certain proper perception that yeah, your pulse goes up and you kind of... Yeah, your face certain, flushes. Yeah, you yeah. feel in a certain, be in a certain state. But the fact that we sometimes can't perceive the body to change is not an argument against the uh, very idea that emotions come along with the body state. I see. So it, you might feel jealous, and although you're not conscious of something happening in your body, yeah. it is. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. To what extent is the range of emotions that would be recognized by someone like Aquinas just the same as we would consider to be emotions? I mean... Does Aquinas just kind of have a checklist of the emotions? And are, is it pretty much the checklist we would think of? So envy, anger, uh, jealousy, gladness, sadness, that sort of thing? Contemporary philosophers of emotions um, wonder whether there are any basic emotions, whether there are any emotions kind of uh, to which all other, maybe more complex emotions can be reduced um, uh, or so. Um, and Aquinas um, also thinks that there are some basic emotions. He, he thinks of 11 basic emotions, uh, namely, let me just mention them, love, hate, desire, aversion, pleasure, sadness, 
hope, despair, fear, confidence, and anger. And he thinks they're basically they're two groups. The first uh, six I mentioned, um, from love to sadness, are the so-called concupiscible pa passions, concupiscible emotions, and then there are the irascible emotions, namely from hope to dis to anger. Um, and he thinks that they are um, there are eleven basic classes of emotion, and there are many others, uh, and they've, but they fall under one of these um, uh, 11. So in this long treatise on emotions in the Prima Secunda, he goes through all of these 11, and he will have questions about how other emotions fit uh, as species under these uh, more general classes. Uh, whereas uh, later in history of philosophy, uh, you, of course, you get other classifications of emotions, for example, uh, maybe most famously Descartes, he thinks that there are six basic emotions, namely wonder, love, hatred, uh, desire, joy, and sadness. Um, and Descartes, uh, of course, also thinks that there are, there's a whole list of other emotions that fall under these as species under uh, these six as genera, but he also has a uh, idea that there are some emotions that are composed out of these. Aquinas does not think that there are emotions composed out of these elements. Okay, so if you took a very kind of sophisticated and nuanced emotional state like being wistful because of the loss of your youth or something like that, hmm. they would have no problem with that because they would say that it's maybe a combination of sadness with something else, some other kind of uh, passion, as they yeah. put it. So the, the question is, what is the, the dominant um, passion? So if, if, if we have to talk about the phenomenology of this, um, of this emotion, but if it's, it might very well end up for Aquinas to be a um, species of sadness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And is it really plausible to say, as he is, that um, all the emotions have something to do with either concupiscence or aversion is the way the way you just put mm. it but basically that means that there are some things you like and some things you don't like is it really plausible to say that all emotions have to do with these kind of positive and negative attitudes i mean couldn't you just so for example i i, I would sort of want to say that wistfulness isn't particularly a negative or a positive attitude it's more like a a kind of uh ruminative mental state and maybe he would just say if that's really what it is it's not an emotion yeah if it's just a um ruminative mental state it might not be an emotion it might be something like a mood uh, so, uh -huh. um, and then it would not fall under the emotions or you might think um along his lines and say well maybe wistfulness is not one emotion it is a combination of two um emotions um, okay yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, of course, he does not, as I just said, he does not think that there are emotions which are composites of basic emotions. Um, but he would just say, well, there are then just two emotions. Okay. I guess uh, maybe a more fundamental objection to his whole picture, though, is that it does seem that reason has something to do with emotion. And in particular, uh, it's hard to see how I could even be in an emotional state about something unless I had formed certain beliefs about it. So presumably he has a story about how reason is at least implicated in the formation of emotion, even if the emotion isn't actually seated in the rational soul. Yes. Yeah, so you might think that um, in a way, the whole approach, um, both Aquinas and other people later um, have is misguided because they put emotions on the appetitive side uh, of the soul. They put emotions uh, on the side of um 
yeah, pro-negative attitudes um, towards something that move us to action. And you might think, well, is that really the right way to think about emotions? Aren't emotions also kind of judgment-like states? If I have love towards something, isn't that kind of judging a thing or evaluating a thing and so or and, think and, about anger uh like if it's revenge it's desire yeah. for revenge i must have the belief that the person wronged me yeah. otherwise how could i want to so you might myself? think well don't emotions and not only do they involve are they not all also rational states or judgments so and aquinas's response is um to say um well the emotion proper is not the cognitive state um uh, of course, emotions are caused by by beliefs and sometimes also just brute perceptions and so. But the perception and the antecedent cognition is just something that causes the emotion. So he wants to make a distinction between what comes with antecedent, uh, what triggers the emotion, and the emotion proper. So of course, um, let's take the case of anger. You can anger is normally considered in the tradition as a desire for revenge um, because of a slight uh, that occurred. So of course you have to be, you have to perceive a slight. You have to, and that this might involve um, sometimes very complex uh, cognitive states. So mention you're slighted by a colleague because he cites you improperly. So I mean, um, <laughs> clearly that involves a lot of um, uh, processing, intellectual processing, and so. But Aquinas would say, well, this is just uh, what triggers the emotion. Uh, it's not the emotion. The emotion is just the the desirative state of the soul. Um, yeah, that goes together with a bodily change. Okay, in that case, he actually has three components for every emotion. There's the cognitive state that brings it on, like mm -hmm. the judgment that someone's been wronged. And then within the emotion itself, there's two parts. There's the physical reaction and the, whatever's going on in your appetitive soul, which just means your desire for something or your aversion to something. Yes, but only that the, the change of the body and the desire, uh, they basically one two sides of the same coin um because every desire for aquinas is goes together with a body change. okay just and like a person is a soul and it's body. essentially yeah. connected with a, a change it's different from um when I mean, you mentioned the example that emotions seem to be something similar to perceptions uh, and they are because normally in perception there's also some body change but aquinas um, makes a distinction um, and he doesn't think that the body change that occurs in perception is as essential to the perception uh, of course it's difficult to receive sound without having an ear uh, that is from a certain way that's just it's difficult to imagine that we can perceive sounds without the ear being shaped a certain way but uh, Aquinas uh, would not think that the that the corporeal change of the organ is an essential part of the perception. It's just a condition that has to be in place for cognition to happen. The example, um, yeah, he actually contrasts the way the, the body is involved in perception with the way the body is involved in, in emotions. And when he compares the two, he emphasizes that in the one case, in the emotion, the change is essential to the emotion, whereas in the other case, it's coincidental. Okay, well, that's obviously quite a sophisticated view of emotions, but not one that met with universal acclaim from later medieval philosophers, which is pretty much par for the course with Aquinas and his reception. And the core of his view, as you've said, is that the emotions are located in the appetitive faculty or the desiring soul, we might say. What is the case that can be made for associating the emotions with other faculties in the soul? The main reason um, that determines the location of the emotions is the question where the virtues 
located because the moral virtues um, in particular are supposed to be moderating our emotions, um, at least some of them. And the idea is that, well, um, that thing that moderates the, the emotions must be in the same faculty. Actually, um, the most straightforward view about virtues is just that virtues are dispositions of the repetitive faculty. Um, so later authors like Scotus um, have independent arguments for locating the virtues um, in uh, the will because uh, Aristotle's famous Aristotle's famous definition of virtues calls them habits of choice, and Scotus um, takes this to me uh, to mean that they must be in the will, which is the faculty of choice. So for Scotus, it follows from this that the human emotions must exist um, primarily in in the will. Now, of course, Aquinas was happy to agree that there are some emotion-like states in the will. He, he agrees with this himself. He just doesn't call them passions of the soul. He calls them affectos. And he's fairly consistent in that use. But he thinks they're not so important for human existence. Um, I think that's why he insists that the um, passions exist in the sense of appetite. Because there, there's something essential for us human beings to be an embodied existence. Um, and in Scotus, we kind of get a slightly different anthropology. Um, for Scotus, we are more identical with our uh, intellective soul, um, which includes our, our, our will. Another reason, I think, why Scotus wants to locate the emotions in the will has to do with the location of the virtues, which are supposed to be um, that which moderates um, the passions. Um, so Scotus takes very serious um, the idea expressed in Aristotle's definition of virtues, that virtues are habits of choice, so he thinks that um, habits of choice must belong to the faculty of choice, which is um, the will. Um, so basically, he agrees with Aquinas that the location of uh, the emotions is dependent on the location of virtue. He just thinks that virtues are located in a different uh, power of the soul, uh, and that uh, determines where he wants to uh, locate uh, the emotions. That's one of the main reasons. The other reasons um, have to do with uh, the experience of moral conflict, uh, Scotus, thinks, for example, that um, it takes very seriously the uh, idea that we can moderate our, our passions. Uh, but he also takes very seriously the idea that there are certain, well, let me call them emotional responses for the um, lack of a better word, that we cannot eradicate. Uh, for example, uh, the experience of something sugary will always uh, induce in us the emotion of pleasure. Um, and in similar way that Aquinas wants to say, well, there is some emotion like states in the higher faculty, Scotus now does the reverse and will say, well, the same way um, as there are proper emotions in the world, there are some emotion-like states also mm -hmm. in the low appetite, uh, but these are completely out of our control. These okay. are part of our human nature and uh, uh, they, they just, just come, up, come about. Um, yeah. Okay, that seems like actually a very compelling point. Basically, the idea is, well, sometimes your emotions are under your control, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. The ones under your control clearly must be in your will. Otherwise, why would they be under your control? And the ones not, not. Yes. Yeah. Right. What about the other thing that seemed very distinctive about Aquinas's position, which is eliminating the judgment part? So, for example, the judgment that someone has slighted me. Uh, so he eliminates that from the emotion itself and says that the emotion, the passion is all about the reaction, the kind of passive part. I mean, in a sense, maybe you could think that's justified by the 
passivity implied by the vocabulary that they're mm. using, as I already pointed out. But it still seems like there's room for the view that the emotion includes the cognitive judgment or just even is the cognitive judgment that I should seek revenge or that this is an appropriate case for revenge. Yeah. So I take your question to be, um, are there any cognitivists about emotions uh, in the Middle Ages? And uh, there are. At least I know of one a person, Adam Wodham, who defends um, the theories that emotions are cognitions. And they're sort of cognitions. Now, Wodham agrees with uh, Aquinas and Scotus and uh, the tradition that there are certain cognitive states that trigger uh, the emotion, and those are not um, uh, the emotion proper. But he also insists that the emotion itself is a cognition or a notitia. And it's very difficult to understand, at least in the medieval framework, uh, what that could mean. Um, and But I think one of the reasons why uh, he wants to insist that emotions are cognitions is emotions seem to be more than just um, desirative urges or so. Emotions have an object. Um, my love is directed at an object of my love. My love for my wife is directed at my wife. Um, I despair about a certain situation. And so, so it has an intentional object. It looks like on the view that emotions are just appetitive acts, um, there isn't any intentional object. At least on Wodham's understanding of um what the opponents say. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he um, wants to say that the emotions themselves are cognitions um, because they have this intentionality um, that is essential to them. Um, I see. So the, the thought would be that if I'm angry that someone has slighted me, I really have to build in the intentional content, namely that someone has slighted me yeah. into the emotion itself. It's part of the emotion, right? Yeah. But it seems like he's sort of double counting, isn't it? Because he he says, well, first there's this judgment that you've been slighted, and then you get angry, and the anger is about the fact that you've been slighted. And so you wind up with the judgment that you've been slighted kind of coming in twice. And so I guess the opponents might say, well, you know, the if it's there, if it's already there in the judgment that brings on the emotion, we don't need to build the intentional content into the emotion itself. Yeah. Before I respond to that, let me just imagine what Aquinas would say to Wodham. Um, and I think he would also um, bring double counting as an objection. Um, first, I think he would say, well, you have a very strange understanding of desires uh, as simple urges. And so um, desires themselves are intentional, but they but they directed towards an object in virtue of the antecedent a cognition. Um, so there's a kind of a division of labor in the soul. Um, we shouldn't think about appetites kind of doing their own thing uh, and, and uh, antecedent cognition doing their own thing. So they're related. Um, so there's a division of labor and it's because of the cognition that the emotion proper is directed at an object. So you might think about inherited um, or derivative intentionality of the emotions um, in this account. So Aquinas, for Aquinas, the intention of the emotion doesn't fall under the table. But actually, uh, a later um, contemporary of um, Wodham um, brings exactly this double-counting objection uh, against Wodham. Uh, Gregor Grimini is one of them. And he says, well, uh, now we have, now we acquire cognitions by, for example, by being angry. And that seems to be very weird. Uh, clearly, when I'm angry, um, my rationality seems maybe sometimes challenged. But on, on Wodham's account, I... I 
I acquire a new cognition that I hadn't before. And learning more about the world just by being angry. Yes, is, that seems to be very implausible. Yeah, that's a little bit strange. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But then you might wonder whether Gregory's objection um, to Wodum is really um, so fair, because clearly the emotion is not a cognition in the way that the cognition that triggered the emotion is. Um, so it's a cognition of a different kind, and Wodum would be the first to stress that. But then, of course... Um, if that's the way Wodum would defend himself, um, then you get back to the old question: Do you really need to call the, the emotional cognition? What what do you say more than? And because now you have to um, introduce a sui kind, a, a new kind of cognition, and it's not clear why you want to go that way if you can't get the intentionality of the emotion out of the antecedent and, and triggering condition. Okay, thank you very much for that whirlwind tour through medieval theories of emotions. Um, and thank you in general, Martin Picave, for coming on to the podcast for a second time. It was a pleasure. <laughs> um, and please join me next time as I'll continue looking at philosophy in the 14th century here on The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps.